listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens. And I'm Paige Lambermont. Joining us today to discuss his new book is Todd Myers. Todd is the director of the Center for the Environment at the Washington Policy Center. He's one of the nation's leading experts on free market environmental policy. Todd, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on. So I want to spend most of the time talking about the book, but I'm kind of interested in hearing your origin story. So you worked at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, and you had a career in uh, public affairs prior to joining Washington Policy Center. It's even um, weirder than that. I was in, in sports. In sports, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so how did you get into the world of sort of free market ideas and specifically free market environmental policy? Because you've become one of the sort of leading lights in, in the movement here. It's a, it's a strange path. Uh, when I was in college, if you had told me that I would spend my career, most of my career working in environmental policy, I would have said that that's ridiculous. Uh, most of the people who I knew in college who cared about the environment um, looked weird and looked like they smell bad. Um, and so I didn't hang out with them. Uh, I worked in uh, politics, ran some campaigns, and then decided I got tired of that. So I went to work for the Seattle Mariners and then the Seattle Supersonics, um, which was a lot of fun um, until my wife decided that 41 home games a year and late nights and everything was too much. So um, I went back into politics and ran a campaign. Washington State, we elect what's called the Commissioner of Public Lands, um, who manages millions of acres of state-owned lands. I knew almost nothing about the environment um, as a policy issue. I knew about politics. But after about a year of working at the State Department of Natural Resources and walking around forests with biologists and foresters, uh, I remember stopping one time and saying, you know, uh, what the things you're saying about managing forests and, and wildlife... I never hear this in the public, in the public debates or uh, among activists. And the guy who was a scientist just kind of laughed and said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're not going to hear any of the real stuff. And I just thought, oh, this is so fascinating. And so, you know, that was more than 21 years ago and I'm still in it just because, um, you know, I was always a conservative and what I found in working with actual scientists, with actual foresters on the ground was that environmental stewardship was very much compatible with my values. It wasn't this sort of trade-off between prosperity and the environment that those two things went together. Um, and so that's why I've stuck around and, and done the work that I've done for the last 20 years. And so the title of the book is Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. So easy question first, what's the book about? Yeah, <laughs> so the fundamental thing is, is that what I want to do is to try to take power away from politicians and give it to people. One of the things that uh, we see in the environment is, is that there is an assumption that um, the way we have to do things to help the environment is top-down big government. And I sort of understand why we think that, right? We created the EPA, uh, we created the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and to a large extent, they worked. We have cleaner air, we have much cleaner water, but the types of problems that those big government solutions were uh, fit adapted to, we don't face anymore. We don't face big outfalls, we don't face big smokestacks, we face lots of distributed sources of um, pollution, which are much more appropriate for 
innovative approaches, market-based approaches. And it's not just me saying this, it was Bill Ruckel's house. So Bill Ruckel's house was the first uh, director of the EPA, um, you know, sort of a legend uh, on the environmental left, even though he was a Republican. Um, but he wrote a piece about 10 years ago saying that the solutions that worked in the 1970s aren't going to work today. So we need to find new solutions. And when I started looking around, what I found was the solutions to difficult environmental problems were primarily coming on the ground, people empowered with technology that was newly available, and they were solving some really difficult problems. And so I got excited because not only does it mean that we don't have to do the big government approaches that are uncomfortable and that I tend not to like, but it means we can still help the environment and that our approaches that are more consistent with our ideology actually are the ones that work best. Well, so the book deals with uh, information technology specifically and the role it can play in environmental pr protection. Can you pick just like maybe two or three examples of uh, new technologies that are being deployed um, that, I mean, your book is full of them, but that um, are sort of examples of what you're trying to describe um, yeah. in the book? Yeah. So I, I give a ton of examples in the book. Yeah. Um, one, just to show that this isn't just theoretical. I think a lot of the the critique that I have heard about free market environmentalism is, oh, that's a nice theory, but actually the only way to really do things is, is big government. So I give lots of examples so that people have ammunition and people can see, look, tangibly, here's how this is working. With, with uh, regard to environmental technology, let me give you two examples. The one is basically that right now, um, here I'm, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. I live, uh, my home is in Washington State, um, and I have an app on my phone that can tell me that I, my house right now is using about 2,800 watts. Um, literally as we speak, because I, and I know that the heater is on because it tells me that the heater is on and some light bulbs and things like that. The reason I know that is because I have a, um, a little box in my electrical box called the sense monitor that, that uh, reads the electrical uh, draw in my house a million times a second. And because it does a million times a second, it can use artificial intelligence and tell me, here's the unique signatures of the appliances you're using, and here's where you're using electricity, and here's how you can conserve and things like that. So doing that, I was able to realize that my light bulbs were using way more electricity than I ever imagined, and I swapped them out for LEDs, and I saved money. Now, you don't have to think that climate change is an existential crisis for you to say, you know what, I want to save some money. Um, so that's just one example. It, you know, if you ask people, how much does a gallon of gas cost? Everybody can tell you within, you know, a few cents. If you ask them, how much does a kilowatt hour cost? Almost nobody can tell you, and they don't know what a kilowatt hour is. And the reason is simply that every street corner has gas prices, but people rarely look at what the kilowatt hour costs. So because of that, giving people simple information allows them to make decisions, fairly simple decisions to save money. Let me give you one more quick example um, about information technology and importantly, how it aligns incentives with the environment. So in uh, rural Africa, there is a big problem with getting water. Um, and so um, NGOs and governments will put in pumps, but the pumps break uh, almost half of them break within 18 months. And then because the NGO is gone or the government's gone, they don't come back and they sit broken for months. So then you don't have any water. So a group called eWater Services put in internet connected pumps and <clears throat> they charge about a penny a day. So you have like a little key fob that you turn on the pump with your key fob. It measures the water out. It charges you by how much water. So you don't waste. 
Um, and it's on all the time. But most importantly, somebody is earning revenue when that pump is working. And when it breaks, they're not earning revenue. <laughs> so now they go and when it breaks, they fix it. And it went from you know pumps being down for three months to like a day. The information about this you can get on the web on their webpage. They have a dashboard, and I can tell you, you know, what pumps are working in Africa in real time, and see that about ninety-eight percent of their pumps are working. Simply giving information about what pumps are working and what aren't, and connecting a financial incentive to that, means that now more than a quarter of a million people have access to water that didn't before. It's truly incredible. That's a really incredible example, and I think what's really interesting there is that a lot of people would probably tell you that applying a profit incentive to something yeah. like water is immoral, but their solution ends up with people without water and the profit incentive solution results in people having water. So it, it's kind of an interesting thought there that, yeah. uh, right? That, that, that there's that conflict of some people thinking that what, you know, what you're advocating for might be like immoral in this way, but it's, it's, it's what results in the actual, the good being delivered to the people that need it. Yeah, the, the profit is not just sort of part of the business. It is the center of it working. And it's funny that the organization was created by former UN employees who were putting in pumps and seeing it not work. And I remember doing the interviews for my book um, and the woman who's the head of the organization is like, look, you have to tell people that they that the revenue is part of this. That's, we have to get people to used to understanding that you have to provide income and revenue to keep these pumps working, otherwise the system doesn't work. And it's even better than that because if you can't get access to clean water, you do one of two things. Either women hike a kilometer or a mile to a stream or something and carry water back. And then because they don't know if it's clean, they boil it. Well, how, what do you do? You cut down trees. Um, uh, tree uh, wood for cooking and boiling water is one of the prime sources of deforestation in Africa. So now you don't have to do that. Or you can buy plastic bags of water. Well, if you don't have you know, access to water, you certainly don't have access to trash collection. So what happens to those plastic bags? They pile up. Yeah. And then lastly, when the pumps were given to the community, right? The NGO will come in and say, okay, community here, you take over the pump and you manage it. Well, it was just, it was just managed by whoever the strong man was in that village and his buddies. So the NGOs realized this. So they said, okay, half of your group that controls the water pump has to be women. And so the woman who is in charge of your water services said that she would go to these meetings and she'd say, so it'd be half men, half women, but the men would be sitting in chairs and the women would be sitting on the ground. And it was very easy to see who was in charge and who was not. So the profit motive, which is so commonly maligned, is the vehicle for women's empowerment in these villages and reducing environmental harm. I had a hard time finding anything to disagree with in the book, but I always like to ask our guests at least one question that pushes back. So when we talk about new technologies, um, there's always a problem that uh, maybe if it's in the wrong hands, right, it can be used the wrong way. And I was trying to think of how someone would push back against your argument. And maybe one way would be that um, take an example of something like smart metering uh, or the example that you gave in your own home, right? I've heard people make the argument that these technologies might enable um, governments or utilities to to uh, restrict freedom through like demand management policies, right? So yep. we do have the problem that, you know, with any technology, it could cut another way. How would you respond to that? 
sort of that criticism is, or yeah. yeah that is absolutely a legitimate concern um the minute you put like smart thermostats in your home, right? And we have seen this where um, utilities sign people up for smart thermostats. Um, in some cases, people don't realize that what they have signed up for is an agreement that they get a lower rate or they get a rebate or something. If during peak hours, when there's a high demand, that the utility can turn their thermostat automatically up or down a couple of degrees. That feels very intrusive, right? To have sure. the utility reach into your home um, and adjust your thermostat. And there have been more than one case where people have like, I didn't know I signed up for this. What are you doing? So I totally understand that. Um, I think there's a few things. First, has to be voluntary, right? I don't, um, and that's why I focus so much on incentives is, is that rather than using a stick to beat people to do what you want, <laughs> which is you know government coming in and forcing you to change, is to say, look, you can make your own decisions, but electricity is cheaper in the middle of the night than it is at peak hours. Think about how you can you know, use electricity at a different time of day. So I totally agree with that. The second thing though is that in some ways government already has this control. So in California, for instance, we had the energy crisis this summer and the alternative to giving people control is blackouts. So, while the two degrees or the adjusting of the thermostats is intrusive, I don't deny that it is, it may be better than the alternative. And just to put a fine point on that, during the California energy crisis this summer, <clears throat> when they were facing blackouts, they said, okay, we're going to um, text customers to say, look, we're facing blackouts. We have a shortage. If you can conserve, please do. It was no mandate, but the demand over the next 15 minutes went down more than the value of all the battery power in California combined. Now think about the billions of dollars <laughs> that we have spent in California to you know, build those batteries. And one text yep. was worth more than all of that. So yes, absolutely, it has to be voluntary. I think these tools certainly can give people new opportunities to save money and energy, but if they are abused, then you are killing the goose that lays the golden egg. There is no doubt about that government abuse would, uh, would you know, uh, kill the opportunities that are here. So um, after reading the book, I have to ask you about your collection of hotel green cards. Yes. <laughs> so you've all, we've all been to the hotel and then they have a little thing that says, um, help us save the planet uh, by, you know, either not having your bed made up or, you know, reusing your towels and things like this. Um, and I always thought that was very funny because it's like, they, they tell you, you help the planet, but, but the, but it's the hotel that gets the benefits, yeah. right? They're, they're yeah. the ones that save the money and the water and the detergent and everything else. So, uh, Weston hotels actually did a thing where they said, if you say, I don't want my room made up, they'll give you $5 for coffee at the local, at the coffee store inside, um, or some, or star, starwood points, right? That was what they had at the time. Um, oh, this is fantastic, right? Now this is aligning incentives with environmental benefits and, and it worked great. And what they found was that business travelers, I mean, I, you know, travel for business. I don't really want people in my room anyway. I don't need my bed made up every day. Um, and I would rather have the, the points. Um, and so it worked really well. 
And so the reason I tell that story is it's not a technology story. My book is about technology and how technology opens up a lot of these opportunities. But it is an example of the power of aligning incentives with the environment to do good things rather than just beating people. And that incentives are more effective than sort of guilt trips, right? Which I think we get a lot of from some folks in the environmental community, from politicians, where it's like, if you don't this, do, do this, you hate the environment. People don't like that. They don't respond to that. Look, I, I'm a little bit rebellious. If somebody tells me to do something, I'm more likely to do the opposite probably. But if you tell me that you're going to pay for my coffee, I will do it. I think an interesting part of your approach, and it's something that you point out in the book, is that you know the benefit of your approach is that we can't rely necessarily on political actors to implement the from an environmental perspective, right. this sort of policies that environmentalists want to see pursued. And we talk a lot about that here at IER, the public choice problems. And yep. um, your approach is interesting because by addressing environmental problems, a lot of times what these technologies are doing is uh, solving problems that consumers face. And this is aligning incentives and exactly right. what you're talking about. They're doing this using techniques like gamification and um, a few other things that you talk about in the book. Uh, last time you were on the show, which was maybe a year or so ago, uh, you talked about how this is the only sustainable approach. Right. So can you just talk a little bit about that, um, the problem of political incentives and uh, you know why, why this approach um, is more sustainable in the long run uh, for actual environmental progress? Yeah. So we just had an election, and if you uh, support Democrats, um, you're probably happier than you thought you would be, but you're still not happy because the Republicans are going to take control of the House. And so your hope that you know uh, government would do lots of new subsidies and spending and things like that, that's certainly not going to happen at least for the next two years. So if your environmental approach is contingent on the next election, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or anybody else, um, you're going to be disappointed a lot of the time. Um, and so it's just not a sustainable, consistent approach. Um, and for conservatives, um, it, you know, often the, the bad policies that get implemented, uh, only a little bit of them get clawed back when Republicans take control. So if you don't change the focus of environmental stewardship, environmental policy from politics to the people, then you're, it's one step forward, two steps back. It's a losing battle constantly. So you have to change the dynamic of how we address those problems. You mentioned public choice. Um, and, and one of the things, I come from Washington State, which is a very uh, environmentally oriented state, a lot of environmental policies. And one of the things that I noticed was that it is actually the irrational policies that are the most popular. And I was very curious about why it is, is that politicians would choose some policies that obviously had costs that outweighed the benefits. And then I realized if you're, if you're going to do something rational, right, if you can say, okay, here, here's the costs, and, but the benefits are so much higher and everybody acknowledges it, why would you get credit for doing the rational thing? Anybody can do the rational thing, right? But if you want to tell, look, here's how much I care about the environment, only those people will do the irrational thing, right? Because irrational policies send a signal about how important it is to you. And so politicians who want to make and special interest groups happy will choose things that are very risky, that have very high costs because they send a stronger political signal. 
And the more that you can take the power out of that sort of dynamic and connect people directly to environmental outcomes, the more you undermine the irrational aspect of it and the more you focus on effective environmental results. Just one more point on that. In the last chapter of the book, uh, make another good point about the sort of government first approach to environmental issues where you point out, citing research from the University of Michigan that uh, that found that people who are the most supportive of government action uh, right. to address climate issues uh, tend to be the least likely to take pers personal measures. And, and this is just one study. I don't want to like generalize to, right. to um, like too much there. One of the things that conservatives, classical liberals, libertarians talk a lot about is uh, is personal responsibility. And I know from our past conversations that living your environmental values is a big part of the way that you approach uh, your work in public policy and you do a great job of demonstrating uh, a sincere commitment to these things. Can you talk a little bit about how you see personal responsibility playing a role in environmental stewardship and in policy discussions? Yeah, I think, look, the, the closer that you can, like I said, the closer you can tie yourself to environmental outcomes, the more likely it is to be effective. So uh, conservative philosopher Roger Scruton um, says he, he has a book all about sort of in, uh, conservative environmentalism. And one of the key points he makes is about a connection to your local area, to your local community, and being a steward of that local community. Um, and that you are more likely to care for what is around you um, than something that's far distant. So, you know, if you're say if you're going to say, okay, how are we going to make a decision about protecting this forest or whatever else? Who do you go to? Do you go to the people on the ground, or do you go to people in Washington D.C. or you know somewhere else for whom it, um, those concerns are just an abstraction? They're just a statistic. And clearly, the closer you get, the more personal it can be to you. And, and again, the more you are concerned about positive environmental outcomes, not just looking good. And there's a great example in Seattle. Um, there is a park called Ravenna Park that used to be a private owned piece of property with these incredible giant old growth trees. Um, and the city said, well, we don't trust the private landowner to manage these. So we're going to, the city is going to take it over and turn it into a park. And then the trees started disappearing. And the trees started disappearing because the city said, oh, that's a dangerous tree. It might cause a safety problem. Oh, this is hard to manage. And so what had been a protected forest in private hands, because people cared about it, now became a problem for governments to manage. And that sort of emotional responsibility attachment went away. Um, so I think that I talk with so many conservatives who say, I'm afraid to say that I care about the environment out loud because the minute I say that I'm concerned about it, I, I feel like it's giving a justification for big government solutions. But if you look at a map and look at where conservatives live, look at the red parts of the country, they overlap almost perfectly with where our natural resources are. Um, so, I think that we have to give, and this is what my book attempts to do, is to provide an alternative approach to environmental stewardship that doesn't re rely on big government so that the personal connection and personal responsibility that people already feel about the environment can manifest itself in a way that is consistent with their values. 
I want to ask you about your beekeeping yeah. and the bee analogy that you draw in the book. Yeah. So um, I am a, just a hobbyist beekeeper. I don't have many hives. I think I have about four right now. Um, people think I'm a little bit strange to choose a hobby where I get stung 10 times a year. <laughs> uh, that doesn't seem very appealing to a lot of folks. I don't like getting stung, but bees are just, they're fascinating. Um, and they're, you wouldn't think of insects as having personalities, but I can go to a hive and tell whether they are happy, uh, whether they are angry. Um, you just sort of get to notice and it's, you get a reverence for nature and the environment from working with them. But you also start to recognize that a lot of the things we say about environment and environmental policy aren't real, right? A lot of people talked about um, colony collapse and hive death, <clears throat> say, oh, it's because of pesticides. It's not because of pesticides. There is a reason. It's a little mite that attaches itself to the bees called a Varroa mite, which has the greatest scientific name ever, Varroa destructor. <laughs> um, but to care about your bees, you can have a theory. You can say, oh, it's pesticides. That's why my hive is dying every year. And then you can make sure that there are you know, farmers around you or other people aren't using pesticides. But if your hives keep dying every year, at some point you're gonna go, you know what, I gotta do something different. It connects you again to those results. <clears throat> the metaphor I use of a hive in the book is that there are about 50,000 bees in a hive. Each of them does a very specific job. Early in their life, they take care of the brood. They may take care of the queen. Um, later in their life, they forage either for water or nectar or pollen, things like that. And each bee only collects a tiny amount of nectar in their life. But when there's 50,000 bees and hundred thousands of bees over the course of a year, um, all of those little trips, all of those little efforts add up to a big thing. And it's very adaptable. Hives can live everywhere from the Middle East to Alaska because they are so durable, because they are adaptable. Um, and because rather than the queen does not run the hive. All the queen does is lay eggs. The hive basically runs itself and each bee does its job. And I just think it's a great metaphor for how we can solve big environmental problems rather than trying to come in and think, okay, we got to direct how the hive works. That's not how it works. Everybody does their role, does their small bit, and it works really well. So I think there were a lot of policy upshots from the book. Um, one of them being that freedom to uh, innovate and deploy these technologies has to play an important role in policy discussions. Yeah. Um, say the average Hill staffer is listening to this podcast. What uh, policy implications would you want them to take away from the book? So I think the key thing is, is that there's a quote early on from somebody who worked at Microsoft AI for Earth that uh, environmental problems the way they are right now, only technology can keep up, right? And we certainly see government is slow, <laughs> politics is slow. Um, and so what you want to do is make government policy more flexible and more nimble to encourage, to incentivize lots of different approaches. And so if you want to take the example of climate, right, the way that we just did the climate bills, we said, okay, if you 
make you know wind power, you get this much money. If you want an electric vehicle, you get this much money. And oh, by the way, it has to be an American and it has to be bought from these, but right, you have all these rules so that you can say, not only is this creating EVs, it's creating jobs and doing all these other things, and now what we find, of course, with EVs is that those very rules are what's gonna slow it down. You've actually sacrificed the goal of more EVs um, for those ancillary political goals. If instead you simply say, look, I don't care how you achieve this environmental goal, go find a way to achieve it and we will pay for success. Then you're gonna get people doing lots of innovative things. Um, and that I think the, the fewer sidelines and constraints you can put on those policies. And the more you can pay for results rather than inputs, the better off you're going to be. When, when the climate bill was passed this summer, uh, there were several editorials, and I actually wrote about it, where they said, this is so this this bill is so fantastic because it spends the most ever. <laughs> it's like, but but the, <laughs> not the, the best. Stuff. Right. It's yeah. not the outcome. It's not the results, but it yeah. spends the most. Well, if you care about the environment, that's not the metric, right? Yeah. That's not what you want to do. So I think that that's a really important point. And I think it draws um, something that you talk about a lot in the book. So many of the companies that you describe do something useful for a time. Yeah. And then they go away. When was the last time you saw a government program go away? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> These companies, they, they come around for a year, five years. They accomplish a small portion of a solution to a problem. Right. And then when they aren't useful in the marketplace or when five other companies come up to do the same thing with better margins, those companies go away. Um, another thing that you talked about was the hackathon um, for yeah. fish. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought it was so interesting the way that you described um, when they closed the program down um, to do something else. Yeah. You, you, you had a moment where you were sad about it, yeah. but then you realized that it was exactly what they should be doing because they were acknowledging that what they were doing wasn't creating the benefit that they had hoped and that they were going to create benefits somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that that was really fascinating. If you well, want to talk about that. Again, it's, it's, it's the process of learning and it's the process of caring about results. So the fish hackathon, um, <clears throat> there were groups like EDF and others who were trying to solve problems with fisheries, overfishing, things like that. One of the cool ones that I mentioned in the book is that they wanted to create an app so that um, once people had caught their catch and they could go to several ports, they knew what the prices were in each port so they could go to the port that had the highest price. Because if you go to a port where there's no demand, um, then you're fish goes to waste, right? Fish spoil. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> um, and if if um, people are making more money for their fish catch, then there's less incentive for them to overcatch or to break the rules or things like that. So they wanted to, they put out this problem and then all these people came together and different teams competed to find a solution. Oh, that was really cool. I was like, this is kind of fun and the people were into it. But um, what HackerNest um, who put it on, decided was that the amount of time and effort it took to put on a hackathon and these sorts of things and get results, it's like we could have taken this money and like paid somebody and done something, you know, in an RFP or done it in a more effective way. That learning process is critical. Um, and it, you know, you can't learn without failure. So you have to set up opportunities for failure. I think that's very hard for politicians, right? Yeah. Politicians, when was the last time you heard a politician say, boy, we really screwed that up, yeah. right? You never hear that. Only on a hot mic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Accidentally. But in in free market um, and in innovation, people do that all the time. They recognize, okay, this isn't working. We need to do something else. 
That's what you want. That's the only way you make progress. One thing that I've noticed is <laughs> yeah. that a lot of environmental groups or traditional environmental groups are moving away to some extent from the government first approach. You've mentioned a, a, a few of these programs now. Yeah. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that because it, um, it's something that I've noticed and I've discussed with a few people and it is interesting to see groups that we've traditionally considered people involved in the political sphere yeah. kind of move away from that and uh, start to adopt some of the things that you've talked about in the book here. Yeah, I think it's very easy to fall into sort of a, an ideological or, or partisan way to think about these. It's like, oh, the environmental left and, they, and what they do. But the foreword to my book is actually written uh, by a woman who works for a group called Wild Labs, which is funded by the World Wildlife Fund. They're one of the leaders in coming up with these innovative technology solutions. Um, and it's really fantastic. Many of the people in my book um, probably don't agree with me on a number of things politically, um, but we agree a lot on some of these other solutions. And I think that when you take these solutions out of the political realm, one, I think people are tired of the divisiveness. And if they can find areas to agree on, that's, that's very exciting. Um, but especially when you realize that your um, goals align, when you both want to help the environment and you set the politics aside, you are more likely to focus on things that create results. In some cases, that is because a lot of the environmental threats are coming in developing countries where government simply isn't an option. Um, if you're talking about ocean plastic, um, you know, most of the plastic in, in the ocean comes from developing countries. Sri Lanka puts five times as much plastic into the ocean as all of the United States combined. Well, the reason that is, is because they don't have a good system of trash collection. So if you're going to come up with a solution, it can't be uh, a government-run top-down solution. As I talk about in the book, um, poaching of turtle eggs. Nicaragua put soldiers with AK-47s on the beach to stop poaching. But guess what? They just got bribed. Um, and so I, I, I made a joke in talking to somebody about this one time. I said, well, because there's a technology that prevents turtle poaching where you can track the egg. And I said, so basically smartphones are doing more to protect turtles than AK-47s. And then I thought it for a second. I was like, that's actually kind of true. It's really amazing. But that is not a political solution. Um, so there is a lot of agreement um, among people on the left and the right who are sincere environmentalists, um, that these things are opening up new solutions and new ways of solving problems that we couldn't before that are avoiding the politically divisive approaches. Um, it doesn't mean everybody. There's still going to be a lot of fights about political approaches to the environment. But the more that we can get people to start thinking about these approaches, they're less political they're more durable and they're more effective. So uh, most of your focus right now is on promoting the book, but what uh, do you have anything else coming uh, uh, out soon that you want to promote? Yeah. Or uh, is there anything that should be on our listeners' radar? That um... Well, I work uh, mostly in Washington state politics. And so if people come to WashingtonPolicy.org or they follow me on Twitter at, at WAPolicyGreen, most of what you're going to see is either stuff about my book or stuff about Washington state politics. But for people across the country who want to know what uh, environment, what political environmental approaches are coming from the left in the future, um, Washington state is one of the places that they start. And so 
Um, you know, I live there, so you don't have to. Um, and you can see a lot of those policies and how we're addressing them and how we're responding to them in Washington state um, to get a sense of some of the problems with um, the political approaches that are being proposed by the left. So uh, it may not affect you directly, but you can get a sense of what's coming potentially down the pike. The book is called Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. It's available now on Amazon. Our guest has been Todd Myers. Todd, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a fun conversation.